This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold. Today, I am joined by Greg Katz. Greg is the CSO, Chief Strategy Officer at the Shopping Center Group. Greg has been in the industry for 15 years. You, you have probably seen him because he's very active on social media. Excited to chat with him today. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate it. So, Greg, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, your journey, and what the Shopping Center Group does? Sure. So. Um, I'll start with the Shopping Center Group. We are a predominantly a retail real estate um, organization, and we have what I would refer to as uh, four or five legs to the to the table, so to speak. So our service lines are tenant representation, which is um, which is our core business and what we were founded on. We have uh, third party services, landlord services, which consist of property management and uh, third party leasing. We have an investment sales arm, and we also have a very robust analytics part of the uh, platform as well. So that kind of makes up our core. Uh, I've been, uh, as you mentioned, I've been in the business for about 15 years with the Shopping Center Group. And prior to that, I spent a lot of time in the restaurant industry, uh, both from an operations perspective, a real estate perspective, and actually owned uh, a group of fast casual restaurants uh, down in the Orlando area for about six years um, that I call my unofficial MBA as I got a quick education in uh, in the restaurant business uh, as an owner. So it was very interesting. Awesome. How did you move from the restaurant business to the shopping center group? So coincidentally, uh, how it, it came to pass was when I was looking at the Orlando market, I, uh, I had a territory. I was originally a franchise um, of, a, of a concept and actually after a while realized the franchise wasn't going to uh, be long-term viable for what I was trying to do. So broke off and created my own concept and created a, a strategy from a real estate perspective and a location perspective that uh, actually at the time was, uh, was assisted by the Florida shopping center group and used a broker there who, uh, who I got to know very well and, and really enjoyed the, the real estate aspect of, of what I was doing as much as I did the operations. So it seemed like a natural progression, uh, as I sold the restaurants to, to kind of go into the real estate side of the business and started at the shopping center group as a, as a tenant rep, uh, and coincidentally specializing mostly on the restaurant side of the business. Got it. And you moved all the way up and today you are the chief strategy officer, which is really interesting because if you go into our space and whatever you define our space, you have third party companies like you, you have landlords like us, you have what, uh, and all everything in between architectural firms, title companies, lenders, CSO is not a title you see often, Chief Strategy Officer. So uh, tell me about that role, how that was kind of developed, and what, what, you, what, what is the Chief Strategy Officer do? Sometimes I honestly don't know myself. However, <laughs> um, 
I will tell you that it kind of evolved out of my, my previous role. So after brokerage, I moved into director of innovation and technology. And, and that was at the time, I honestly, there was no one else. <laughs> it's same type of thing. There really wasn't anybody else that had that kind of title or role that I could find um, in the industry. And so I, it, it was, it was a unique way of bringing together um, a lot of the technology and strategic parts of the company under one umbrella. And I think what we realized back then was, you know, you had everything from marketing and digital marketing and, and, and GIS and mapping and, and data and analytics and even things like phones and IT systems and things like that. And they were all happening in silos. And so what ended up happening is this role brought all of those silos together under one umbrella to create a holistic strategy of you know, what we need to, to, to look like uh, in the future, how we need to get there, et cetera. Uh, as that morphed, uh, the, the chief strategy officer role kind of expands on that. And so it, it adds a, a, a little bit more of a, a company-based view from the standpoint of, of people, human capital, right? And, and, and the strategy around where the organization needs to be, you know, three years from now, five years from now, seven years from now, et cetera. And you know, what's happening in the industry and how do we need to get there? So it's, it's, taking, it's taking what we learned from a holistic approach on the, the technology and innovation side and, and trying to leverage it for the entire organization from a strategic standpoint. And do you have a team? I imagine you have a team. Do you have a team? We do. Uh, I have a team of about, uh, we're a company of about 230. I have a team of about 25 um, that are made up of marketing research, uh, IT, uh, uh, marketing research, IT mapping, and, um, and a little bit on the strategic side as well. So uh, we've got a pretty robust team that's behind that to, to support and, and, you know, take care of all the initiatives. Got it. So as you, and, and, and now I, I understand a little bit more, and I think that'll be good context for everyone out there who hasn't heard of a CSO before. Through this time, what has been your biggest focus? I think that's a great question. I think it's, it's been twofold. One is what happens when people go remote and work from, you know, remote work, work from home, whatever you want to call it. and. A, the logistical piece of that, and then B, the, um, the emotional and, and, and the human toll that it can take in terms of, you know, immediate change and what it does to, you know, where your role is going to be, what's happening from a business perspective. So it's been communication and, and logistics and making sure morale is there. And, and it's been, um, there's been ebb and flows. We've learned by trying and doing and messing up a few times here and there and having some great successes in, in other places. And I think what it really comes down to is you know, people want to feel connected and want to feel valued and want to feel like they're contributing to the organization. And sometimes when you're sitting at home, whether it's at your kitchen table or in your home office or whatever, uh, it's hard to really get a read on on that those aspects of of your contribution. So we've really we've really put a lot of effort into into making sure that we continue that landscape. Because as you know, I mean, real estate is holistically very social, right? Very you know relationship driven, et cetera. And so it, 
our company operates that way and our culture operates that way. And, and, and we had to keep that through this pandemic. Got it. And what is, what has been the, the biggest success or strategic move that you guys have made that's working in the last six months? I would say there's two. One is the creation of tools and resources to allow business to continue as usual. So by that, you know, the things like Zoom and that type of thing are the obvious ones, right? Making sure your organization has them, but things like uh, virtual tours and ways to show property in, in, in unique and different ways where you don't necessarily have to be at the property initially supporting that with, with the analytics and the, and, and the data and, and telling the right story and continuing to have business as unusual as it is, but business as usual. Right. And I think as you, as we looked at that, I, that's been a, a big piece of it. The other has been uh, ways to uh, collaborate. And it's, it's interesting because I always thought collaboration really needed that physical interaction continuously, you know, brainstorming sessions, water cooler, you know, meetings, so to speak. And I think what we're finding is there's ways to continue to collaborate and stay innovative and come up with creative ideas, even if you're remote. And I think those two things together have led to, um, have led to a lot of successes. And actually, I would tell you business is probably not where it needs to be by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think anybody in real estate would say that, but um, we, I think we fared a lot better than we thought we would, you know, back in March when all of this started. So you bring up an interesting point, which is, and I've said this for a while, which is that there's most jobs, not all, but most jobs in America, in most industries can be done remotely. There's obviously certain sectors, right? If you're in a retail store, the retail staff, hospitals and stuff. And so maybe most is a, unfair word, but there's a significant amount of jobs that can be done remotely. However, there is some unquantifiable power of the human connection and being together. And I guess given that you've had high productivity virtually, do you still believe that there is a necessity to be in person? Yes. Yes. And, and, and I agree with what kind of how you just framed that up, Chris. I think it, it's, it's I, I think that although video calls and, and those types of mechanisms that are out there now uh, can allow for some connection, I think it's a different kind of connection. Uh, what I've noticed with, with a Zoom call or, or Microsoft Teams or whatever you want to you say is that it, you feel like you're always on. And so you always have to act a certain way. And if you leave your screen for a second, people wonder where you are. But like, if you're together and you say, Hey, I got to go run and get a cup of coffee. Nobody really questions that, that, you know, you just kind of go do your thing. I think there's a different interaction that's taking place. And I think it's still beneficial, but I don't think it replaces that human component. I think understanding, truly understanding facial expressions, understanding tone, being able to, you know, shake somebody's hand, give them a pat on the back and say, job well done. That doesn't 100% translate virtually. And, and I think that there's definitely a place for the office. I don't know that it will be, you know, five days a week or, or whatever, you know, 
nine to five, so to speak. Uh, but I do think there's a huge place for the office. And I think it's a necessity. Yeah. I, th- I think one of the things that I think about when I think about what is some of the power of the human connection is that you have everything now is scheduled. I was pretty, I was pretty scheduled person previously. And so organic training and development, I think in America is probably at a, at a low because you have, you know, our, my, our general counsel made mention on an executive management call. He's like, if someone had a question, they shoot me an email and they had a question on something. I go out into the, yeah, out of my office into the cube area, explain it. Everyone would get to hear it, learn from it. And I thought that was interesting perspective because that is now gone. And I think we probably to grow as a society and, you know, in American business, we need that. And so there's no doubt you can be productive remotely, but, you know, are there opportunities that are missed from not being together? So. And and to your point, I I think, think about if, uh, if you're onboarding a a new employee, a new broker, whatever the case may be, right. How, how do you integrate that person into your culture, into who you are, right. And how do you train them uh, to, you know, in whatever that role is without having that interaction. And I, I also think the, the other piece of that is, you know, you look at, uh, as uh, holistically, you look at Gen Z and who was already very digitally oriented and, you know, all the concerns around that, just that core digital orientation for everything. Um, I don't know how your experiences have been, but when I, you know, I can yell to my kids and say it's dinner time um, and I don't get a response, I can text them and they're like on my way down. And, and, <laughs> and so I think, you know, I think building that relationship digitally, this is kind of furthered that for that generation that's now coming into the workforce. And that does concern me as well, because I think the human interaction component is kind of forced on you as you enter into the work world, if you're going to, you know, depending on your role, obviously, but if you're going to be successful and um, I think Gen Z needs that. uh, And and it's a critical component that right now they're not getting. Yeah. Uh, The, we we focused on continued training and development because of missed opportunities here at DLC that, but um, the, the digitally oriented is an interesting perspective. So you know, you, you spend a lot of time on innovation and technology. Have you seen any innovative breakthroughs for the commercial real estate industry yet coming out of the pandemic? You know, I, I think there's two things with that. One is commercial real estate holistically has not been great at adopting technology quickly. I'm just generally speaking, right? And and I think people always tend to say, okay, we're laggards, this and that. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's more that, when, especially on our side, when we look at brokers in general and, and, and how people transact, you develop a workflow, you're comfortable with that workflow, it works for you. Why do you need to change it with any kind of technology? If you're good and you're making, you know, you're making a good living, why, why change anything? And, you know, if, it, if it's not broke, don't fix it type of thing. But I think with 
some of the technology that that's been coming out, especially around the pandemic, I think it really brought to light or continues to bring to light things like mobile data and 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 movement and changes in that. And it's been that's been around for a while, but I don't think it was as mainstream as it is becoming because people want to understand, you know, what is what is really happening and what does it look like pre-COVID to now and you know, how it's being used to track the pandemic even, right, with COVID cases and movement of those people. And so I think that's been a, that's been a big one. Uh, and, and, and I do think the way people are starting to conduct tours and things virtually and the technologies around that are also, again, have been there, but are becoming more mainstream and, and more functional for the end users and more simplistic for the end users. And I think those are are both of those are gaining quick adaption. But, um, what are you using for virtual tours? We actually um, created our own internal uh, platform through uh, our GIS, through our Esri platform, which is our mapping platform, and um, have, have leveraged in, you know, some virtual reality and some 3D, et cetera, et cetera, and some of, you know, the Google Street Views and all of that incorporated it all into that platform. So. Um, we are bringing in, you know, the drone videos and like I said, the 3D and the inside space videos, et cetera, but it's all done um, in-house and, and through, through our platform. Got it. And are there cameras everywhere now? I don't think it's as much as there's cameras everywhere as there's the ability to get cameras everywhere, right? So if, if a space doesn't have it, you can go in and you can now use your iPhone and get a full you know, a full uh, space plan based off of, you know, scanning it with your phone and you can use the Matterports of the world and things like that to, to give you what you need. So I think it's the tools are more readily available uh, and, and more, more mainstream so that people can get the basics done, turn it over to the, you know, to the, the mapping team and allow them to kind of finish it off and make it look great. Awesome. That's a, a good, uh, what I would call it, high level business kind of scenario of, you know, the, the pandemic, what is, what do you see as going to be, you know, your focus, Greg's focus between now and the next 12 months, what, where, where are you going to be dialing in your energy? Twofold. One is getting, uh, getting the right balance of, in office and out of office uh, work and collaboration, et cetera. Uh, I think that the other piece of the equation is typically when we, we saw this in the, in the, in the great recession coming out of, you know, in 2007, eight, nine, et cetera, we see that because of the, the shrink that takes place in, in real estate managers on the, you know, and, and, and researchers and analysts, et cetera, from a lot of the retail platforms, a lot of retail companies, we see a, an increased need for more information, more platforms, more data, more technology that, that retailers, restaurants, et cetera, ask us to provide versus having them to have the resources. So we look at this as an opportunity to further grow uh, the analytics part of our platform and really um, and really stay cutting edge and in front to support not only our existing clients that we have, but the analytics clients that are external and non-brokerage. So it's, I think those are the, that's where the big focus is going to be. The demand 
we're already seeing that demand really start to ramp up as people are trying to figure out what to do. And got it. So let, let's take a, a pivot. We, we have been a little bit, but a little more. What's going on in, you know, what's your, your sense based on what you do and all the information you have at your fingertips? What's going on in the marketplace? What do you see happening, notwithstanding what we read in headline news? <laughs> I think that the interesting component for me is, I, I think that there's several things. One is this continual push to, to resurrect and, 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 and keep life to the, uh, some of the concepts that probably would be beneficial if they moved, if they moved on. And, and so the JC pennies of the world and the Kmart's of the world. And I think that it's this long, slow death or this long, slow process that's just continuing to create ambiguity um, on the retail real estate side of the equation. Uh, I also think that the focus towards, you know, we were moving away from certain segments. We were moving into entertainment and restaurant and, you know, all of these things to take place of other concepts that were kind of phasing out and on their way out and, and, and were more fat oriented. And I think that that's going to cause a big relook into um, what does that mean? How, you know, what, what does entertainment mean and how can we still leverage that? Uh, and what's going to be successful coming out of the pandemic and who's going to, you know, who's going to feel comfortable in these environments. Uh, I think that's a big piece of it. But I also think that this, this willingness to say retail's demise is here and all the great headlines about bankruptcies and, uh, you know, it's, it's the sensationalism that goes around that. Retail will evolve. It continues to evolve. This is just something that may have forced evolution to be quicker. And I, I, I think we're, we're being headlined out to your point uh, about all the, you know, what's, here's all the negatives that are going on, but there's a lot of opportunity. And, and it's, it's a lot of places where they turn crisis into success, right? And where restaurants have found out that, you know, I can't maybe do as well as I did before, but by being innovative and having people being served in the parking lots or, you know, creating a way to get my, you know, have my food be able to be to go. All of these things have, have allowed people to continue to survive and eventually thrive. And I think that's a big, that's a big piece coming out of this, that there's not as much focus on um, from a, a general media perspective, because that's not as, that's not as fun as talking about, you know, 7,000 stores are going to close this year and, and, and all of that fun stuff. So I think there's a, there's a, just a reinvention and a re-evolution. And I think it's actually an exciting time if you can figure out the right niches to be in and the right ways to, to, to leverage what's going on. Makes sense. You know, the, some of the brands that you talk about, I, I'm always fascinated by those that can take nostalgic brands, reinvent them with success. Not easy to do. Uh, I hope that some of these brands that happens to, and that, that happens in the non-retail space and in the retail space and an Atlanta based one that I had on the podcast recently, uh, Stuckies. Yes. It is, you know, really focused on, you know, bringing back this nostalgic brand. I think she's doing a really good job from a, a social media perspective and bringing the consumer in. And I think, 
They're going to reap the rewards of that. I think, you know, this might be, it could be that some brands, you know, shouldn't exist anymore, but it also might be a time where you can buy nostalgic brands at a discount and what can you do with them? Right. And so um, if there's a focus on running them the same way as yesteryear, then maybe they should go. But if there's meaningful innovation and, you know, uh, thought process on what the outlook might be forward, I'm intrigued to see those who can figure out some interesting mousetraps by buying nostalgic brands and turning them around. Uh, I find it a really fascinating topic, in particular in our industry. So we will see how that plays out and what the evolution, as you say, is around that. What's keeping you up at night? I hate the question, but I am curious, you know, what, what is over the next 12 months, what is your biggest concern? What, what the permanent change to consumer behavior is and how that impacts our industry and our, and our company, you know, what, what is, what is more permanent in, you know, we, we, when we started this, we were talking a little bit about remote work and, you know, what that's doing. Just what change in habits, because as you know, this has been long enough to create some permanency to some of the, the habits that consumers have. And what does that look like and what stays and, and, and how do we adapt to that? You know, what is a, you know, what's the change in the parking lots look like because of curbside and, and, and does that stay right? Or, you know, what happens to impulse purchases because, you know, because of those types of things. I mean, I was in, was in a grocery store earlier this week and, it was, I felt like it, I'm being a little extreme here, but I felt like it was me and 50 Instacart pickers, right? And that was it. And, and this is just, just this dramatic change of stuff that you're seeing happen. And, and, and I just wonder what it means and how do we get in front of it? And I don't know that anybody has the answer yet. I think you can speculate and you can, you know, look at the data, but I don't think anybody knows what coming back to normal looks like. And that, that's, that's my biggest worry right now. Yeah, that, that, that is an interesting innovation. You know, in retail, we have this thing called C stores standing for convenience stores. One of the things that really hit home is I was at a Wawa this summer and they had a curbside pickup. And what dawned on me was someone who's dubs themselves a convenience store and convenient. And I don't know if Wawa considers themselves that the, the world puts them in the convenience store category, but already convenient, making themselves more convenient by offering curbside pickup, which was a really, to me, interesting because you hear about the businesses that maybe aren't as convenient, trying to become more convenient, but the convenient becoming more convenient was interesting to me. So, Agreed. And, and, and you look at that and say, okay, it makes it more convenient. And then you start saying, but at what cost, right? And, and what, what happens to the impulse purchase? I, I, if you're like me, when I go to a Wawa or Sheets or any of those, you know, uh, a quick trip, et cetera, and I'm going, you know, I go in to get a, a, a bottle of water and I usually end up coming out with a thing of chips or a candy bar or something, right? And so what happens to that um, as you get that person coming out to the curb. And, and so it's, it's, those are great and interesting discussions. And I, and I, I don't know, like you said, I think 
I don't know that anybody has the answers yet. And it's interesting to watch and see experiences like you just talked about and understand, you know, does something like that stay long term or, you know, if once we return to whatever that normal is, does that go away? And, and is there a strategic advantage in having it or not having it? Yep. Last. So we'll end it on a positive. What are you most excited about right now? The, the innovation that's taking place right now. And I say that at broad base, but really it's watching people figure out how to adapt, thrive, survive, all of those different things and, and hearing those stories, the opposite of what we were talking about earlier, hearing those stories. I mean, when you hear of a, you know, of a five-star restaurant that turns their parking lot into a, a Sonic style drive up, you know, eat your food in the car type of scenario and, and it's packed. Right. And when you hear about, um, you know, when you hear about the modifications in, in product or, or ways of getting, you know, items to customers, I think we are so resilient in our creativity and it's super exciting to hear about, you know, what's happening, what's coming up, et cetera. And those are the ones that, that get me excited. And those are the people that I like to, to, you know, follow and understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. And and they're taking a big risk, uh, you know, but it's, it's the, it's the out of crises comes tons of entrepreneurial opportunity. And I think that's the cool thing right now. Awesome. We'll end on that. I agree. That is a cool thing. Last part of our show, retail wisdom. I've got three questions for you. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. One, what is your best piece of commercial real estate advice, Greg? Build relationships, seek advice, learn from the best. So I sum it up with be a sponge, take it all in. And at some point you'll be able to wring it all back out. I love it. All right. Question two, fan favorite. You, you mentioned some before. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? I have a nostalgic one and one that, that, that was more personal to me. One is my nostalgic is Toys R Us. I just, my kids grew up in there. I, I can't tell you how much money I spent on Legos in there. So, um, you know, that's, that's one I would just love to see, figure out how to, how to make a comeback. And from my personal perspective, uh, beta, because I thought beta was a really cool and innovative concept that, that kind of was taken away from by the pandemic. and. Uh, it was, I thought it was one of the first of its kind and innovative and I enjoyed it. So that was probably the other one. So beta is interesting to me because are there going to be more digitally native brands that were not, you know, for, you know, profit first organizations and they entered this challenging time with negative cash flow and cash burn? Are there going to be more of those that end up, you know, going by the wayside because bad timing and the models just broken? Um, nonetheless, they were the fan favorites of Wall Street and investors and VC world. So I find it interesting. Uh, we'll see what what happens with some of those. I found what I, what I found interesting mostly about them was not only, you know, they had this unique, obviously model of how they 
basically, you know, basically leased or rented space, right? Space within space. But they're, they were also selling their technology, right? Their store technology, how to, 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 to you know, track people, see what people are buying, how long they're looking at something, et cetera. And they were creating partnerships. Uh, they were starting to be on the uh, end caps of Lowe's. Um, they were, uh, you know, they had partnerships with Macy's, et cetera. So they were, start, you know, they were more than just that store that you would, you know, you would see there. And I just found it interesting that they were covering kind of all aspects of the business um, so, and not uh, just a retailer. I'll tell you the retail thing that I, I loved about, I, I, and I love about beta is they had products you couldn't find in other stores. That's a right. simple retailing fundamental is do I have a product and service that's unique and not a commodity? And all too often we're going into stores and I use this example often, which is you can find a lot of Pepsi and Pampers everywhere. And it's hard to compete if you want to sell Pepsi and Pampers with the Walmarts and Targets and Amazons of the world. It's hard to compete on Pepsi and Pampers. But if you have something, a product or service that is not commoditized, well, you have an interesting market advantage. And I thought beta just from forget about the model. I think the media to me got too caught up in the model. And one of the most fundamental things was, you know, uh, it's one of the things I do like about the direct to consumer is this, is this product that you can't get elsewhere. And I think there's something to, to that in retailing in the future, which is, you know, it, what is the true purpose to coming to the store? And that discovery of innovative new products was definitely that for them. Uh, and I wish that got hit home a little bit more by headline news, but to me, that was an interesting one on them. Agree completely. It, it, it the, 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 the exploration, right. Of those products and also the education that staff knew everything about all of those products. That's what they had to do. And so you were getting, you were able to explore and you were also able to be educated at the same time. And it, it was, it was, that was interesting. And you could, you're right. You could not go down the street to target or Walmart or wherever and find these products, which I think was a unique advantage. Yeah. Last question. I don't know about you, but I'm a Thanksgiving fan. Uh, thinking about Thanksgiving, it's October. We're actually being quite candid. We normally host. We're thinking about what we're doing for Thanksgiving. Uh, we haven't confirmed yet. But to that end, I am on uh, Target's website now. And I am looking at the Butterball Frozen Bone-In Turkey Breast. What is the price per pound for the Butterball Frozen Bone-In Turkey Breast on uh Target's website. See, I, I knew I should have brushed up on my Thanksgiving pricing. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with $14.99 a pound. Wow. It's $2.29 a pound here. So, uh, but thank you for playing. Tell you what I know. <laughs> You're not buying the turkey for Thanksgiving is my, my take on that. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for playing. Um, and listen, appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on. This is great. A unique perspective that we don't get on this show too often. No, I appreciate the, uh, the invite and, uh, and thanks again. It's great. Thank you for listening to retail retold. 
If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.